Hello and welcome to these excerpts of the Westwick PHN COVID-19 Pandemic Response Project ECHO series. This is session five recorded on Thursday morning, the 30th of April. We'll start with an infectious disease update from Associate Professor Deb Freeman. Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks very much for the opportunity to give you an infectious diseases update again. Uh, the first thing was to comment on the number of cases in Australia, about 6,700 with 89 deaths. We're now about five and three quarter weeks into isolation or lockdown, as we've referred to it. Within Victoria, we've got 1,354 cases with nine patients in intensive care. The doubling time, which I've been referring to on a weekly basis, has now extended to 34 days. When we met at this time last week, it was 24 days. So every week, that doubling time is getting longer. There have been no new cases in Geelong, Ballarat, or anywhere in southwestern Victoria. The second thing that I wanted to comment on was um, some changes in the guidelines with regards to healthcare workers who are pregnant. I think we commented on this last week that there was a recommendation beyond 28 weeks to not have any clinical contact. And this has now been revised by the department. Um, and so there's, if uh, pregnant healthcare workers are well and they're taking appropriate precautions, it's advised that they don't work directly in a COVID-19 area, but they're otherwise able to continue working if there are no other concerns. Um, in terms of influenza, up until now, we hadn't really seen much influenza despite quite a lot of flu swabbing that had been going on. We're just beginning to see a trickle of cases now. So we're just gonna watch this space to determine um, what else we see. Um, I wanted to comment a little bit on some of the new literature emerging with regard to stroke risk. Um, there have been um, reports of an increase in strokes among patients under 50 years of age without classical risk factors for stroke. The mechanism's not unclear, but it appears to probably relate to a hypercoagulable state what are the implications for this? I suppose at this time we don't have any more information on the exact um, mechanisms of the increased risk, but the recommendation would be around control of risk factors such as hypertension and control of atrial fibrillation and, atrial, and of course, anticoagulation if the person's CHADS VAS score um, deems that that's appropriate. Um, the COVID Safe app was. Um, um, was put out in the last week or so um, for uptake. The major purpose of the app is to um, create the ease in contact tracing. Um, from an infectious diseases point of view, we're very, very supportive of this app. Um, we, we don't believe that there are um, privacy or security concerns. I'm happy to take any questions. I'm clearly not an IT expert, but from an infectious diseases pandemic point of view, it probably is the most logical step in terms of being able to manage contact tracing and to be able to keep us out of lockdown as we move forward into the future. Um, the next thing to um, briefly comment on was a publication about a nursing home outbreak in Washington State, so Seattle area. The reason to bring it up is we've talked before about the very large 
um, the very significant ramifications in the aged care sector to a single um, resident becoming infected and the way that it spreads. The importance of presenting this information is that 63% of residents in that facility ended up testing positive, but more than half of them had no symptoms at all at the time that they tested positive. And the time for them to develop symptoms was between one and six days. What this highlights is the reality of asymptomatic um, infectivity and the fact that there was viable virus that could be contracted by other people up to six days before people became symptomatic. And finally, I wanted to move on to the testing blitz, which is going on currently in Victoria. Despite extending the criteria within the last um, couple of weeks to remove all epidemiological criteria and to really allow people with very minor symptoms to be tested. This did not identify a large spike in cases. They've only been small isolated clusters. Um, the current plan from um, Victoria is to perform 100,000 tests over the next two weeks, both for people with symptoms, however mild, but also now there's a push to perform asymptomatic testing. There have been some health services and also some businesses which have been approached to perform large-scale asymptomatic testing. There's a couple of concerns with regard to the very low pretest probability of having a positive test within the community if you have no symptoms, um, given that even the prevalence of symptomatic infection is very low. So the positive predictive value of the test is very, very low. And we don't have obviously a gold standard to compare the test results against. However, I should say that I think this testing blitz is rather than being primarily scientifically driven, I think it's being driven as a pathway for relaxing measures. And I think that's the major driver behind it. So we're certainly getting behind that here locally as a mechanism to hopefully, and this is what we hope we'll find, is that there's very little um, asymptomatic infection within Victoria. Um, that's all I had to say, and I'm happy to come back at the end and answer questions. Thanks, Bianca. All right, thanks, Deb. And Deb will come back for rapid five minutes at the end. So do um, pop any questions that you have around uh, infectious diseases, infection control, or um, physician-related questions in the chat for Deb, and she'll um, give us five minutes at the end to answer those questions. So thanks, Deb. I'd now like to hand over to Jeff Urquhart. Jeff, if you could introduce yourself again and take it away. Uh, good morning. Yeah, thanks, Bianca and Deb. So hi, I'm, it's Jeff Urquhart here. Hopefully most of you know me. I um, work as a GP in Geelong and also as a Health Pathways Editor and also have a role with the RACGP Practice Technology Committee. So today's topic, um, telehealth, a follow-up visit. Um, so in tough times, we've seen the medical profession and patients embrace technology at never before seen rates. So we've got um, telehealth web-based guidelines such as Health Pathways and the use of the COVID tracking app. So today I'll just take a bit of a deeper dive into some of the questions um, from the chat last week. So video telehealth, the research which is mostly hospital-based, suggests that video consultations using modern technologies appear broadly safe for low-risk consultations. And they're more successful if the mindset is in the practice is about improving service rather than implementing the technology. And certainly the video technology, which allows physical examination as well as visual contact with the patient, does seem to suggest that the outcomes are better 
from the research literature if you're using that um, video presence rather than just a telephone um, contact. So the vexed question was, was mostly in the chat around the telehealth item numbers and it's, they always seem to be in a state of flux and um, I know we're in, we're in stage three at the moment of the iteration of telehealth item numbers. We're about to move to stage four which is um, involving some consultation with the AMA, RACGP and ACRAM. So the telehealth item numbers, as I suggested last week, were initially given the green light for a six-month period from March to September. However, what's exciting to me is that um, I understand that there's going to be a modified footprint after this time elapses. So I think one of the big learnings is that we can um, take our current video and telephone-based patient encounters and we can therefore move into an ongoing safe practice of telehealth um, down the track. So just a couple of things that were asked last week, and I know Jared will probably go into more detail, but my interpretation of the telehealth item numbers was that if you, um, you could have two items for the same patient um, in a day, as long as there was a reasonable time gap, say three to four hours, there's been a change in the patient's condition between the first and the second telehealth consult, and that as long as you document the times that the um, telehealth consults occurred. And the other um, interpretation from my point of view, if you do a telehealth with one clinician and then you actually do a face-to-face -face with another clinician on the same day, then certainly there should be no problems with billing those two telehealth, um, or the, the telehealth and the face-to-face -face, um, later in the day with a different doctor. So just one thing, I thought I might just give you a little bit more detail about um, how to go through a, a, a COVID-19 consult on a video telehealth. So firstly, what I would check is risk factors such as frailty, diabetes, uh, whether they're taking chemotherapy, steroids, or other immunosuppressives, smoking history, cardiovascular disease, asthma, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So all this can be checked from their history. I then firstly would just start with a ballpark assessment of the patient. Is the patient distressed, too breathless to talk? Secondly, I'd then move on to describing the problem. How is the breathing today? And then try and get a, an assessment of the current state of the patient. So are you so breathless that you're unable to speak more than a few words? And then fourthly, focus on change. So a clear history of deterioration is quite important in um, COVID-19. So what, have they, what, what can't they do today compared to yesterday? And that's really more important than whether the patient has got shortness of breath. Um, so, and also a new audible wheeze is also quite concerning. Um, then with your telehealth, uh, with the video telehealth, you've got the ability to um, look at a physical exam, which is the important bit as well. So you can um, have a look at the patient, assess whether they're, you know, in bed or walking around. Um, you know, you may even be able to pick up things like cyanosis if you're lucky. Um, and then there's all these other measures you can do. If they've got a thermometer, you can measure their temperature. You can ask, you can look at for their respiratory rate. Um, even you can measure their heart rate by you know, asking the patient to find their pulse over a 15 second period. Or if they've got a Fitbit app, you can even get heart rates from that. Blood pressure may also be possible if they've got a home blood pressure monitor. So finally putting all that together, um, there's a couple of red flags that then come out of the consultation and certainly typical or atypical chest pain um, and whether they're able to talk in sentences. And if they've got possible signs of sepsis, such as a tachycardia or tachypnea, all those sort of things would warrant 
either a face-to-face in the practice or consideration of transfer to the emergency department. I think I mentioned last time there's a whole lot of um, other non-COVID-related consultations that I would undertake with um, video telehealth. One of the ones I'll just highlight is the bottom one. Um, with allied health um, providers, they can have used telehealth to do the, um, to do the um, consultation um, and then do the physical um, hands-on stuff um, in their room so that they do uh, limit their face-to-face to under 15 minutes. Another clinics such as sexual health clinics um, also find this useful so that they can limit their time with the patient and having some of the, the rest of the time with the, um, the video telehealth um, consult. I also mentioned last week several uh, uh, red flags for not doing um, telehealth, so I've listed all those here. And just a little bit of detail, I uh, did brush through this last week. Um, but these are sort of the three or four players in the Australian market for telehealth. So um, I've listed, um, listed these here and these will all be available in the um, PowerPoint to the, uh, PDF PowerPoint to the participants later. And then the final question that did come up last week was around the um, prescribing. So with our current scenario, the scripts um, still need signatures. Um, Obviously for S8s and the S4 drugs of dependence, that there is a different process there and um, you need to actually have the printed version uh, sent, uh, sent to the pharmacy so that the patient can pick up the scripts. This is all going to change hopefully in the next couple of months when we get electronic transfer of prescriptions, uh, which will allow us to um, send an electronic token to the pharmacy via a text or an email um, to the patient who then takes that to the pharmacy um, or if an elderly patient may not have that then there's also a paper token that can be taken to the pharmacy and this will allow prescri prescriptions to be dispensed for all S4s and S8s. So I've just got a little um, pictogram here of how it might work for a, um, a patient, James, who um, 72, takes regular medications, the doctor can do the telehealth consult do the scripts, they're all issued electronically. A token is generated, um, goes to um, James. He's got a mobile phone. He then receives that token. And then the um, token can then be um, either um, taken to the pharmacy. And there are also, I, I believe, um, process in place that allow that to be electronically delivered to the pharmacy so that the script can be um, then uh, delivered to the patient. So finally, just like to acknowledge um, some of the people who helped um, with this presentation from the RACGP committee. And thanks for listening and taking the opportunity to put your foot into the world of video telehealth. Um, it's not all that hard. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff. That's fantastic. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? We've um, had to rapidly adapt as, as described, you know, normally this would take, this transition could take years. You know, GP practices and practice managers and nurses have done this within weeks. Um, you know, as, as Jeff said last week, 90% have gone the path of phone consultations with 10% video. Interestingly, speaking to allied health members, um, psychologists, you know, the majority of their work's been video and, and the thinking there being that there is that value add, as Jeff described, and how we might take this time of relatively, I guess, new normal adjustment and low prevalence to perhaps get some of our systems in place, our workflows in place and um, embrace this technology, which 
you know, very much hopefully could um, augment um, our work for some time if we can take the time to get it right. Um, the thinking being that going forward, perhaps 30% of our consults could be done in this way. And um, it's particularly, I think, maybe interesting for um, our more rural and remote um, colleagues. So with that, I'm gonna now throw to Jared Ingham to talk about, well, what does it look like on the ground? And I know, Jared, you've also got an academic interest in this area as well, but let's start with, what is it looking like on the ground for Springs Medical Centre in Dalesford at this time? Thanks, Jared. So look, I will share a screen and go through a PowerPoint. And with me, I've got uh, Emma Johns, who's our uh, general manager, so I'm called, uh, I'm a rural GP of uh, 25 years, actually 30 years in Dalesford, and uh, Emma Johns, who's our general manager. So, Emma, I th thought you might speak to our um, yeah, our point I can, if I can get it to run. So, thanks very, very much for the opportunity to share our experience. It's been quite a busy few weeks for us all, I'm sure. Um, but what we wanted to spend some time on is what we've done at our clinics um, and what we'll probably continue doing in the future. What we've learned. So just to give you a quick snapshot of Springs Medical, um, we have three sites. So we've got our mothership in Dalesford that you can see a picture of there. Um, and we've got two smaller branches at Trentham and Kyneton. Um, so we probably average about 7,500 patient attendances per month, which is about 1,700 a week. We have a lot of people come through our doors. Uh, and in terms of workforce, we have 18 GPs, um, including three registrars, uh, two third-year deacon students, 14 nurses, 24 reception admin and 14 allied health. So that's 72 people that we need to make sure that we supported through this COVID-19 crisis um, and make sure that they can come to work safely and go home just as safely. Um, so suppose that really drove our desire to move quickly um, and make decisions that would allow us to do that really well. Um, we also recognised early on that if we did this right and we did this well, that we could continue providing some great care to the community. So plan for the worst, hope for the best. That was our mantra um, and continues to be. <laughs> this calendar slide here just gives you a snapshot of March. Now, we know things were happening before March, um, earlier on in the year, but to give you an idea, we had five cases at the start of March. Moving forward to the 28th, we had 111 in Victoria. So during this period, we really felt like we were we needed to plan for a New York type of situation, um, and that drove a lot of our planning, lots of meetings, lots of communication. Um, so Jared will actually go into a little bit more detail around the individual things that we did, um, and also how this gave us an opportunity to consider what we do every day in our practice, what we're doing now, and what we can actually continue to do in the future. Yeah, thanks, Emma. So, as she said, that the, you know, from having five cases a day at the start of March to 111 at the end of March, coming per day, uh, we were so a lot of rapid decisions. I know that's been happening everywhere, but just share. And perhaps the three things which I've put in red there are the things that I'm going to share. Just talk through some of the other things. Though first, is that we we did start very early on. Uh, start identified we need to have whole team meetings, and we progressed on to having a, a regular meeting via Zoom. In fact, part of the reasons I wasn't attending. Uh, disappearing from these meetings halfway through for the first week or so of the project we were of the time we were meeting every morning and then we progressed on to meeting twice a week and now we're meeting weekly we did telehealth nearly all telephone but yeah we are moving into video and using health direct for that 
uh, obviously working from home. We completely redesigned our flu clinics so that were run on a Sunday or a different time so we could do it with, say, social distancing. Uh, as I mentioned, started video consulting. But the three things I wanted to mention most are the last three here that we, we ran some local uh, meetings um, uh, with the Shire, our health service and residential aged care, and we followed a pandemic plan. Um, uh, we used, used that quite importantly, and we did quite some interesting things with communicate with our community using YouTube videos and Facebook and web page and wanted to share those with you. So in terms of uh, communicating with other people, we realised early on that we needed to own our own curve. I mean, you only have to look at in Tasmania to see that, you know, if your curve gets out of control, um, you know, in one area, it doesn't matter how well the whole country is doing, you, what, how you respond in your own area um, would impact upon that. And for us, of course, Unlike Ballarat or Geelong, which would have a lot of resources, governments are pretty much going to be ignoring small country towns. Not intentionally, just that's where the bang for the buck is that they're going to achieve more. So we started to organise uh, meetings of the the Shire, the health service and and uh, ourselves and the residential aged care to, to identify the weak spots. Um, we, we identified a couple of things which were going to be important. If we were going to have a New York type scenario, which we planned for but didn't happen, we realised that having patients at our hospital was not going to be a good idea. We were pushing very strong to set up an alternative facility at the local football club to have that run. Um, of course, obviously, that sort of thing has not come to pass. We also identified if patients were going to be managed in the community in the future that we needed to have safe systems. And if you look at the weak spots, they're going to be weak spots is where you know, you, you've got uh, shire workers who would have been going into the home delivering meals and not knowing it's not been their traditional role to know about personal protective equipment and to manage things correctly so we were we were planning for a new york type scenario trying to imagine what it was like two or three weeks in advance in the end that hasn't come to pass now we use these meetings to plan for more uh, simpler things we're trying to we you know who's got ppe you know where how are things going um and uh you know just organize we're trying to set up a uh, respiratory assessment clinic and a testing clinic in our at the local community health center so you know owning our own curve next thing we did was we which we think was worth sharing is that we um we did actually identify quite early on the RSHUP and the Department of Health have fantastic resources in terms of following a pandemic plan. And early on, we identified, and Emma particularly speaking with one of our directors, uh, Brad Wire, uh, identified that we wanted to break into teams. So from very early in March, we actually split into two teams. We we're still functioning in two teams. We have w one team of nurses, doctors and, and receptionists, admin. Uh, we work on separate days. So today, for example, today is my face-to-face uh, -face day. I go to the clinic, but I don't cross paths with the others in any way. We don't even socialise together because we identified, because we provide the entire services to our community. And if our team went down or if our community had to close, that was going to be the end of services, uh, you know, in our region. So we, we're still functioning. We're now starting to think about when we might be able to shift from that. Um, the other thing is we got went into communicating and we had this terrible weekend. I don't know, we all had about that straight after the um, uh, the long weekend when there was just communication, this huge panic in the community and people were hearing all this stuff about what was happening around the state but not what was going on in our community. Now, I'd done a bit of, uh, you know, uh, YouTube uploading and whatever before as a musician and, and uh, performer and uh, so I thought, well, I can do this. So I went into the surgery on a Sunday and put up that ladder and, and so I could see it in front of the logo, which was painted on the wall, and, uh, and use that phone, which is in my right hand. I popped that on top of the ladder and I shot a video. And I posted that video online. 
and this is what happened. I posted that video online and then uh, uh, within 24 hours it had 2,000 views. And as Emma said, we've got 7,000 patients. So 2,000 of our patients saw that video within 24 hours. So that progressed me on. Look, this is a really great way of communicating with our patients. So we started, we actually created our own channel, Springs Medical Channel, where, and we set up videos and we we're putting videos up every two to three days. Uh, and basically they were just chat. So just put a phone up, recorded and made sure they were less than 10 minutes. Um, a quick chat between two people. You can see one where I've actually recorded the Zoom meeting, uh, the one, one there with, because uh, uh, we were on the opposite team. So that was where I was explaining about how the teams, there's a pharmacist, I got the pharmacist to explain how they wanted to receive their prescriptions. And this was um, uh, just a fantastic way. Um, as you can see, generally, I mean, some of them had more views than others, but, you know, and as the pandemic's gone, it's got less and less views. But that's been a fantastic way of communicating um, and really simple to do. I mean, you only, you could, I mean, I've done a bit of this before, but if you've, even with a, a, a you know, a, your children or whatever will quickly produce a video, I can produce these videos, uh, record them in 10 minutes. We don't do two takes, we make mistakes, who cares? Um, and then I just bang them into this uh, program and upload them to YouTube. The only thing which has taken me time is we've had some deaf patients who've found them so important that they've asked for them to have transcriptions and YouTube has auto transcribed, but it does make some interesting mistakes. So I've had to go and correct those. Um, and then we post them on Facebook. We've then asked them, we've, our Facebook page has just gone ballistic. Um, uh, and we then there's a community, Dalesford has a community, it's called Grapevine and we post them to Grapevine and we get comments on those. Emma, do you have some things to say about this sort of engagement uh, we have? Jared, I think we were all really blown away about the community response to our Facebook. We were quite nervous being a small community. The good old grapevine can put some quite cutting comments out there so that we're a little bit concerned about that. But the support's been awesome. Um, and I saw someone's chat pop up around, you know, we see federal um, videos and things, but you're right, the local message has been brilliant. So um, Facebook's gone off and that's something that we'll keep doing. And so what will stay, um, I think at Zoom team meetings, you know, it's a large practice over multiple sites. We've, you know, it was always hard to get the time when everyone could come. Well, they'll just keep going. We'll keep using YouTube. We've got more agile news using our web page. I've gathered, we used to have an external person always uploading, updating, comment. It was just too slow. So we've got a spot there on the on our web page where we can daily news update, where we can put things up very quickly and adjust to questions, you know, if we're being overwhelmed. We found the weekend flu clinics, the staff have said that there's actually less errors uh, when we're not trying to do it in part of a general general work. Uh, the video telehealth, we, we, Jeff, we are going to try and develop and work it more and more into our practice. I've started to use it and I, I completely agree. It'll be the way of the future. I think the tele, telephone health has a limited lifespan. Um, there's, I think, a video will work. I've also put in a research grant because I am a researcher um, to try... Uh, to see if I can get some evidence around the telephone health and whatever through the RSCGP. Um, we then obviously then also start to think about returning to normal. Uh, we'd like to get a testing and respiratory assessment clinic. We do believe, and the World Health Organization says we should be keeping all COVID-related consultations separate from our normal work, and we're trying to set that up. Um, we are, we're hoping to shift from our two-team stuff to a single team by the 18th of May. Um, obviously, the big part is we are when more patients feel confident all of us would like a holiday. It's a bit funny, none of the GPs, we're worried that at the end of all this that everyone wants to take a holiday at the same time. And, you know, certainly yesterday we had a meeting on this you know, financial, we've had a 20% loss in our um, uh, uh, turnover. 
Uh, so that's been a significant issue in terms of how we're going to make a financial recovery. Stop. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks to Spring Medical. Um, really, well, this, this is actually a lovely, um, I think, celebration, really, of the work that you've done. And it's really exciting to see uh, how a team have innovated at this time, really, really which has been a very difficult time. So um, well yes. done. It's a real joy to, to see that work. Um, and um, and I'm going to tune into the YouTube channel. I think that's it's right. You know, it's having that, that contextual message. And, and I love how you say owning your own curve. Um, you know, what, what, what one of the WHO... Um, you know, officers from China said that what this, the success in Wuhan was that they brought the population along. And I think that's what you're describing is really bringing your people along with you to be part of the response um, led by health, but including inclusive of the whole community. Um, so fantastic. And I'm sure we're going to crack on now with some discussion and I'm sure there'll be people who'll be interested in asking some questions. Um, with that, we are going to crack on with the discussion and I'm seeing some stuff already coming up in the chat, which I'm going to come to in a moment. I'd like to start the conversation, in fact, by inviting Jared to, um, um, we, we, we invited you last week, but I know you had to head off to a clinic meeting. Um, but we had a lot of discussion last week about that second face to face, which also Jeff just talked about today. Um, I wonder if I can appeal to you to um, respond with some of your other roles and if you'd let us know about some of your other roles that you play. Um, yep. Last night on the TMR um, webinar around telehealth, um, Harry Nestlin, president of the RACGP, described that once this is all over, you know, the attitude won't be, well, what happened in the pandemic stays in the pandemic, that we will absolutely be brought to kind of account for uh, the way we use Medicare and telehealth at this time, which, look, is less of, I think, a concern to the good GPs that are here, more of a concern to some of those corporates who leapt on to you know, these item numbers. But if um, perhaps that's one of the things that we're all thinking about is compliance. Could you tell us how, um, you know, that might be judged at the end of all of this so that we can kind of get, you know, understand the thinking about what we kind of can and can't do, what can and can't be, um, um, yeah, yeah, what does it look like yeah, in practice? So, uh, Bianca, thanks for the opportunity. I did post something before having to leave last week about the um, the rule on, on uh, you know, about multiple attendances in the same day. And uh, so one of my other roles is I am, well, I was on the MBS task force looking at Medicare. I'm one of the GPs responsible for the, on that task force for the removal of the no usual aftercare restrictions. So I could get big claps from everyone for that, made everyone a few dollars. Um, but I do work as a deputy director of professional services review. So the professional services review is the final tribunal you get to if you've, uh, uh, you know, run through Medicare audit and had a meeting from the, Director of Professional Services Review, and she decides that um, um, we'd like to form a committee of your peers to hear uh, evidence about your um, uh, billing practice, I suppose. And that's and that, those. So I'm a deputy director there, so I can speak with, you know, what experience of what happens at uh, those uh, panels. Though, of course, you know, you can't speak about individual spots and what I'm giving is not a definitive answer of what would happen because of course every every case is different and we all obviously also bring a very open mind to every case that we see um, but in terms of Jeff's description earlier on say for an example the question of multiple attendances on the same day the big issue under um, under the, um, uh, the well the way it's described um, in Medicare is what I'm just going to share with you now, which is the multiple attendances on the same day. That's the explanatory note that applies. And, and really the issue is whether the services are a continuation of the initial service or not. That's the actual wording in Medicare. Um, and as Jeff des describes, if, if you've had one service, uh, 
you know, the, the examples they give, which are a continuation, is we're putting your eye drops in to dilate the eye and then getting someone back in or giving someone a prescription to go down to the chemist to get the to get an injection, you know, denosumab that they're going to bring back and you're going to give to them straight away. They would be seen as continuations of the same service, whereas if there were, you know, other things may not be. In the end, it's just saying what exactly is a continuation and what isn't. In the end, it's a peer decision. You know, what the, the decision which a committee would bring is, what would be acceptable to the general body of general practitioners? You know, what's acceptable? That's the standard. And so you can, it's not what I think is best or what Jeff thinks best, but it's what would be acceptable to the general body. Of course, the easiest way, you're never going to be in trouble if you don't bill. And of course, if you just, you just want to be confident if you are billing two separate, that they are not a continuation of the previous, previous service. I suppose that's what I would say. There are a couple of other things which I think would potentially you know, how are you going to end up in trouble and end up in front of Medicare? You're going to end up in trouble either because you're at one end of a bell-shaped curve. So, you know, if you're the – I've met the top prescriber of temazepam in the country. Um, you know, if you're at one end of um, – uh, if you're – you know, if you are the top provider of telehealth in the country, they're going to be looking at your work. Um, uh, that, that would be automatic. Um, it, and the other way is if there's a complaint made about you, um, so if people, if patient or other staff member makes a complaint, you're going to come up before us. Um, or the other way is, in fact, the, which I think is a potential within this, because some people are doing an awful number of telephone consultations, is the 80-20 rule. So if you do more than 80 services on 20 days per year, it's an automatic appearance between. So actually, that doesn't go through a review process. It's an automatic uh, appearance. Uh, I still find that astounding that people can do it, but... Um, you know, there there is actually a a, a thing uh, in the eighty twenty rule that says if there are exceptional circumstances that uh, eighty services are allowed. You know, you, that's a that's a get out of uh, get out of problem uh, free card, um, uh, which would apply, which may apply, but you would need to justify why you uh, needed to be providing eighty services on more than uh, twenty days per year. The other issues I think potentially under Medicare. Um, will be the issues of consent. You know, how is consent done and in in when if people are ringing, if you're ringing your patients, um, uh, uh, you know, it's not particularly for routine reviews. You know, previously when you might be sending out or contacting a patient um, for, um, for a service, um, you know, you're doing a review, GP management plan review or a health assessment review, you'd be sending them a consent contact. Uh, whereas now when you're completely immediately following that up, perhaps with the service, it's an issue of did the patient truly consent? And the other thing is, of course, some of the Medicare items require you to produce, give a document to the patient, so or offer, at least require you to offer a document to a patient. So how are you doing that? They're the sorts of things which, which I think would come up. Okay, so the rest of the Q&A, um, come and join us next time if you'd like to be part of it. Um, now, though, I'm just going to provide the um, rapid five minutes of answers to the chat from Deb Freeman, followed by Glenn Bradley to give the PHN update and Kate Graham to give the Health Pathways update. Thanks for listening and um, please come join us next week where we talk about kids in the era of COVID-19 pandemic response. What could we be missing through kids not attending and in this era of telehealth and telemedicine?
Yeah, thanks, Bianca. Um, so I, I just wanted to thank you so much, Jeff and Jared, for those wonderful presentations because you kind of really touched on some really important points. I just wanted to comment on one thing after Jeff's presentation about the remote sort of assessment of patients. The only other important thing to add is the importance of some monitoring of oxygen saturation because in patients who do have COVID-19 infection, the silent hypoxia is something that tends to creep up on patients without necessarily being in step with the symptoms that they describe. So that's why any monitoring service, however remote, that can include oxygen saturation monitoring is very important. Obviously not as relevant now with such a low number of cases, but when we do have cases, that's something important to consider. Um, asymptomatic testing, there is no isolation required for people who are tested when they're asymptomatic, so they don't need to be in isolation before they get the result. Um, the respiratory assessment clinics, um, I, I, I guess the, the naming of the clinic, the respiratory assessment clinic, perhaps, you know, made it seem as if it was only for people with respiratory symptoms. Um, I, um, our, certainly in our respiratory assessment clinic, we will see people that have atypical symptoms, perhaps gastrointestinal symptoms, people with a fever. And I think the benefit of this of these types of clinics is a face-to-face -face consultation where you take a more detailed history and can perform a physical examination and perhaps any other investigations as required. The things that I perhaps would just be mindful of, some of these things that were mentioned before, so any evidence of sepsis or chest pain in which these assessment clinics are not set up to deal with people who perhaps might have ischemic chest pain or, or sepsis. And then I guess the other thing that Jared mentioned before is sort of looking at the weak points in the system um, that you might have. And so I guess we all need to look within our own setting, even locally, about what our weak points are um, that, that could in future times be places where we might have localised cluster of infection. In the chat, um, the... Um, the New York style approach of the oxygen saturation monitoring, although they've had a devastating pandemic without a very good public health response, that's been one of the things that have been recommended. Our home monitoring service from our health service, the, the major thing that it has is nurses doing OBS and giving patients an oxygen sat monitor that they keep with them at home and, and keep checking their oxygen saturations. So it is actually a really important component of remote monitoring. Um, I don't think there were any other questions. For, oh, and if there's any other questions, I'm happy to answer them, but I'll throw it back to you, Bianca. Okay, great. Thanks, Deb. So what I'd love to see in the chat is, um, you know, this importance of O2 SAP machines. You know, what have we got? What's everyone got? Have we got SAP machines we can lend to patients? Are there mobile testing um, groups that can, um, you know, provide this service? Do we need to um, ask the PHN or ask the Gov for more resources and support at this time? Yes, we're low prevalence, but things might change and we've got to be prepared. So is this an opportunity to get some of those um, material, you know, that equipment in place at this time? So um, no, please pop it in the chat um, because now I'm going to bring um, Glenn to give us the PHN update. Before we go, Glenn, um, Gemma, if you don't mind just popping up the slide, I just want to let you all know that um, this series now is RACGP and ACRAM accredited. So as long as we have your RACGP and ACRAM numbers, Helene Gilmore will um, will register your, you for points. This is a CPD um, time-based activity for both 
um, groups. Um, you could actually, um, actually, if we put Helene Gilmore's um, address in the chat, that would be great because you could email Helene now and give her your email address. And if you've been to um, previous webinars, she can also give you the certificate for password attendance and you can self-apply, you can self-record this as an activity. The other piece is, um, Oh, there was another piece in there. Oh, yes, we're also going to put the evaluation in the chat. So if you'd like to take time now to evaluate a session, we can keep improving and we'd like to keep improving for you. So let us know what you'd like from these sessions. Um, also, I'd love you to start throwing ideas in the chat about what we're going to do next week because, um, you know, have we come to the end of discussing telehealth and video conferencing? Is there more we'd like to explore? What are the hot topics for you at the moment? Where would you like Project ECHO to go um, next week? Um, and uh, then I'd like to hand across to yourself, uh, Glenn, and then Glenn's going to be followed by Kate, and we're going to wrap this up um, in the next few minutes. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Bianca. Uh, yeah, Glenn here. Look, and I don't want to take up too much time. A lot of a lot of the um, the, the changes and progress has actually been covered off by by Deb. Obviously, we're still working through what exactly uh, the state uh, has meant by the blitz and how that would be operationalised, and whether or not that will have impacts on on general practice capacity and we're still uh, waiting and watching for that to come out. Uh, in addition to the, the expansion of the, the criteria, there's also been statements uh, which have come out around um, expanding access to a national stockpile PPE for allied health, just to clarify and confirm that we haven't actually been given the directives as to what that means, i.e. which practitioners, what are the criteria, the eligibility criteria for that. As soon as we do receive it, then we'll, we'll obviously respond to that uh, in regards to the distribution of that PPE. Probably the, the key focus, well, not the key focus, but one of the areas that we're really more focusing on now is, is just in relation to probably three key areas. One is uh, starting to look at how we actually ensure that we, we, we start to capture what we're, what we're learning through this pandemic uh, from, um, from a primary care perspective and how we actually capture that information and utilise that. The other key one, and um, just picking up on some points there that Jared raised uh, around what actually might or should remain post-pandemic, that has been a change in that practice, whether that be you know, the, the change in proportion of, of telehealth uh, or, or other uh, changes in practices that has occurred. And the, and the third key one is, is also just looking at the the myriad and variety of different models of care that has actually been successfully implemented and, and what were the key, I suppose, success factors of those and what from a PHM perspective should we be doing to, to ensure uh, either the sustainability of them or the ability to actually stand up similar type models when we get into another um, uh, scenario, for example, a, a, an asthma scenario or another flu pandemic uh, scenario. So uh, supporting uh, the general practice community to actually stand up these types of models of care as quickly as possible to, um, to, to respond in, um, in a timely manner, which, is, which has happened in this COVID period. That's probably enough for me with regards to uh, where we're sitting from the PHN. So if there's any questions, I'm happy to take them and I'll hand them back to you, Bianca. Okay, thanks, actually. I'm going to thank everyone for coming and I'd like to thank our panellists today, Deb, um, Jared and Jeff, thank you very much for providing your insights and experience, expertise. Um, do everyone keep in touch, send us some questions for next week in the interim. And if you've got a, um, 
story about your clinic that you'd like to share, please let us know. We'd love to hear about um, different models of care. Um, I'm going to hand over to Kate, um, Kate now to wrap it up.